Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Well, welcome back to this week's episode of Off the Cuff. I am so proud to welcome to our podcast my colleague Eleanor Holmes Norton, who represents the District of Columbia, which is a unique congressional district for reasons that we'll discuss uh, here today. Uh, Eleanor just has an amazing uh, story, a personal story and and a career story. She's one of these people, these iconic leaders that... uh, just make me feel privileged every day to be a member of the United States Congress. And I want to start by asking her how she got into public service and how she came to be a member of Congress, because uh, it's such a wonderful story of uh, about civil rights, human rights, and more. Eleanor, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Jared. What a, what a treat to be able to talk to a colleague uh, who I admire. Uh, and now to have the opportunity to talk to his constituents as well, it looks like. Look, I didn't get into, I I got into Congress by accident, I think. I got into public service um, when I was appointed chair of the the New York City Commission on Human Rights. That also was was not the way people usually uh, get into public life. I had sued John Lindsay for refusing to allow George Wallace to use Shea Stadium. I was a, a young lawyer for the American Civil Liberties Union. So let's just get this straight. <laughs> you were representing George Wallace. Yeah, I was certainly representing his First Amendment rights. <laughs> 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 because at the ACLU, one of my specialties was the First Amendment. Of course, yeah. I come out of the Civil Rights Movement and spent time in Mississippi. But when it came to, when I graduated from law school, my first job was was as assistant legal director of the uh, ACLU. Now it really says something about uh, John Lindsay that after I sued him and won an easy First Amendment case, uh, some months later he appointed me to chair the New York City Commission on Human Rights. He must have respected his opposing counsel. <laughs> well, he was the mayor, for God's sake. Uh, and that's how I got into public life. I was seven months pregnant when I was appointed. I went on to be appointed by President Carter, the chair, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So you see, I had a special uh, interest and special life in civil rights law, mm-hmm. which I also practiced at the ACLU. But at the ACLU, I represented people you know, on all kinds of constitutional matters. Uh, I came to um, um, Congress, certainly not because I had intended to do so. After all, I represent a district that has only a Congress member who can vote in committee but can't even vote on the House floor. So when um, the Carter administration was over, I wrote my way into uh, tenure at Georgetown Law School. And that is where, if you get tenure, uh, for life, that's what it means. That's where you settle. 
this seat, the seat I now have, was um, held by a man who, for 20 years, mm -hmm. Walter Fauntroy, he decided to run for mayor. By the way, he didn't win. And then Donna Brazil, who would be my daughter, uh, who is uh, well known as a pundit now on TV. Donna Brazil came to me. I had been a kind of mentor to her. She said, Eleanor, you're a native Washingtonian. You ought to run for Walter's seat. I said, I'll go away from here. <laughs> and uh, if it weren't for her, I'm sure I would not have won. She is an expert uh, political operative. That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> she was then and she is now. Yeah. So when Donna said, I'll be your campaign manager, she not only was my campaign manager responsible for my getting here to the House of Representatives, uh, she was my chief of staff for 10 years. Mm -hmm. She helped me stay here as well. That's great. So I wasn't, I wasn't intent on being a, a member of Congress at all. And that has a lot to do with the district I represent. Where you but you've been up. here for how many terms now? This, is, this I think, is my 14th term. Yeah. 14 that's times a, two. Times two, that's right. So that's, that's a heck of a good run. Um, and I want to I specifically talk about the unique aspects of the District of Columbia and representing D.C. Uh, in Congress. But first, let, let's go back to that civil rights movement part that you glossed over. It's, I think it's actually kind of a big deal. And um, you've got to be part of the civil rights movement uh, during some pretty consequential times. Talk about that a little bit. Well, that's, you know, that's a lot to do with being born at the right time. I mean, who would not have wanted to be in the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s? I was already in law school. Uh, but, so what? <laughs> They're always the summers. Uh, and uh, I, Washington was not a head hotbed of the Civil Rights Movement. In some ways, it should have been. Although by that time the schools were integrated, I went to segregated schools in the District mm -hmm. of Columbia. Uh, but you were down in Mississippi. But by the time I went to law school, the district was a wide open city. Mm -hmm. And I went to Mississippi as a um, student in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, otherwise known as SNCC. Uh, I, I had always wanted to go to Mississippi and about every place else in the United States, in the South, had been opened up, but these were, this was kind of the last frontier. Mm -hmm. What year was that? That would have been 63. Okay, so did you meet John Lewis there? I'm, I was sure, not in Mississippi. He was mostly southeast. Uh, I was in Mississippi, which I can't tell you what part of the country that was at the time, but it was uh, one of the great adventures of my life. And you worked with the luminaries of the Civil Rights Movement. Right, the uh, Dr. King so. and, and more. Well, not Dr. King, but uh, to give you an example of the people, among the people I work with, um, Mega Evers, who was, was assassinated, uh, was the um, the head of the state NAACP. And when I first came to Jackson, Mississippi, the first person they introduced me to was was uh, Mega. Now, Mega made this pitch for me to stay in Jackson because they were just beginning a civil rights, uh, sorry, a sit-in movement there. There have been sit-in movements. We were way past that. Uh, indeed, he had had to sit-in to encourage 
uh, younger people to sit in, and they had been beaten very badly. So he wanted me to stay in Jackson. And I said, no, I told Bob Moses. Bob Moses is one of the luminaries of the civil rights movement, though far lesser known. He, he came, he was getting a PhD in philosophy at, at uh, Harvard, and it was he who first came into Mississippi. Uh, and it was through him, because he would have to come north in order to raise money, that I got to, to, to understand Mississippi and want to go there. Uh, and so he brought me down. Now, Mega Evers carried me that entire day through Jackson, took me to get on a bus, um, must have been at least two hours to go to Greenwood, Mississippi. Now, if you want to hear a dramatic tragedy, I got to Greenwood, they were expecting me. They took me to a farmhouse and the people who had to go into the fields and the next morning were expecting me. You had to be snake you were put up with right. local people. Yeah. Yes. And so I said, Well, how do I take a bath? And the lady showed me a tin tub. And she said, You heat water and you just that's how we do it. I said, Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. She said, I'll be gone, we'll be gone. She and her husband when you wake up. That's what you'll do. And the snake office is right up the street. I was sitting in that tin tub having heated the water, when really a child, it must have been about 12 or 13 years old, knocked on the door and said, they want you to come to the SNCC office. Mega Evers has been shot and killed. Wow. That's how I learned. That was my introduction to Mississippi. Wow. You worked with people who were killed, who were beaten. I mean, the sacrifices and, and the the things that were at stake were, were so incredible at that time. Fast forward to today, uh, it, it seems like we've come a long way on civil rights, but um, there, there's some ugliness brewing in this country, wouldn't you agree? And, does, and does it bring you back to the rawness of, of the 1960s in some ways? Uh, there, there are echoes of it, not nearly as bad as, for example, Mississippi. But I have to tell you, and to be absolutely candid with you, I didn't see any of this before the 2016 campaign mm -hmm. and thereafter. I really didn't. What it means is... You didn't see the seeds of it in the birther movement well, and in some of the... No, I really... Yeah. Uh, well, during the campaign, I did say yeah. during the campaign, I saw. And certainly since uh, Donald Trump has become president. Um, what it says to me is that we have come a long way in suppressing and getting rid of, actually, a great, a great deal of racism and sexism, but all it needs is a leader, mm -hmm. somebody to free it up. And we see the kinds of things going on now that a year and a half ago you never would have seen. Mm -hmm. It tells you how close we are to our history mm -hmm. and what kind of leadership it takes to make sure we're through with it all together. Amen. Well, let's talk about the District of, of Columbia. Uh, anyone who visits the Capitol sees the license plates that say no tax or taxation without representation. And it's going to change it to no taxation without representation. <laughs> <but> yes. <laughs> uh, so th this is a, a jurisdiction that mm -hmm. has a unique status uh, with uh, an overlord, the federal government. And uh, I wonder if you could explain to people in, in the north coast of California 
what it's like to be a representative or even a resident of of a city where you really don't have the kind of representation that everyone else in this country has. Well, it's another accident of history. Framers and founders of our country never meant there to be anybody who didn't have full and equal rights. I also remember it was they who coined the slogan, no taxation without representation. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the revolutionary soldiers marched on them when the, when the capital was in Philadelphia. And there was no precedence. Well, what do you do then? You're part of a state. Uh, what do you do to protect yourself? Well, we now know. But they thought you must have a capital that is not part of state and is under the control of the federal government or the Congress, and then you'll know what to do if that happens again. So <laughs> see that anachronism mm -hmm. lives at least in form still, because essentially what, has, what happened was they created the capital out of Maryland, Virginia. Importantly, and this is another reason you know they never meant to have a capital that didn't have equal rights. Importantly, uh, there was a 10-year transition period. The parts of the district that were in Maryland and Virginia, those framers took pains to see to it that they continued to vote for that entire period, transition period. It was only when they didn't have jurisdiction anymore, it was the Congress of the, of the United States that, that that, uh, that then, of course, uh, had authority over the Capitol, and then the district lost what for 10 years it had had, senators and, and representatives. And since then, for part, parts of, of that more than 200-year history, we haven't even had any home rule at all, that is to say self-government. But um, since then, um, the, 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 the district has shifted uh, according to who was in power. By the way, uh, the kind of government we have now was first given us by the radical Republicans after the Civil War, not by the Democrats. <laughs> a, a delegate, just somebody who would vote in committee, but not on the House floor. So they that had, system of non-voting representation came up after the Civil War? After the Civil yeah. War. Uh, and uh, we lost that after Reconstruction. Because the Democrats came back into power, and it's our party, yours and mine, Jared. And they thought that was too much. <laughs> oh, they, 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 all the, all the, the Democrats were the, the problem. No, our, our Democratic Party has some skeletons in the closet. It does, and, and to its credit, it's yes. thrown them all out. It, that's right. We've opened <laughs> the door. We can at least talk about it. We are the party of equality today. Yeah, we've come a long way. So what does it mean in, in, in practical purposes uh, today? Uh, the District of Columbia is a very progressive democratic place. Um, they passed legislation legalizing marijuana, doing all sorts of other things, uh, gun violence, uh, reforms, and then what happens? Then they have to fight the Congress to keep their own local laws. Um, and that means every single year I have a fight. Last uh, Congress, there were, I believe, eight attempts to overturn our gun laws. Why? Uh, because some acolytes of the National Rifle Association were simply doing their bidding. Now, how am I able to keep that from happening? Not in this house. This house, in some ways, is a lost cause. It's this house that does it to us, although there were members of, of the Senate who also sponsored that bill. But 
I'm able to preserve controversial laws like that normally by going over to the Senate, excuse me, and establishing. And so I've had to establish relationships. Ever since I've been in the, in the Congress, I mean, all of us do. You have relationships with your your own uh, senators, but you don't have to have relationships with senators all yeah, over the Senate the way I do. <laughs> but you and I, and this is important for your own constituents to know, are in, in almost every respect treated the same in the House. Uh, I don't know what your committees are. Well, you and I are on transportation That's and infrastructure true. You are on together. Transportation. And you're a ranking member on the, the highway subcommittee, very important subcommittee. And so I could even get to be chair of that committee if the Democrats were in power. That's right, you are on one of my, be my most important committee. Um, you go to the House floor to vote on bills like the bill, we, the service transportation bill we passed just a, a Congress or so ago. Uh, I went too, and as a ranking member, you would thought I would be the first to want to put my card in to vote. Yeah, I got a card, but but I cannot vote. Your card doesn't work in the voting console, even on the transportation bill that you helped write. Precisely. And Jerry, could I thank you because I, um, I'm sure I had your vote when I attempted to do something, do it every year, to recapture the only vote we've had on the House floor. As a constitutional lawyer, one of the first things I thought about was uh, what I knew about committees. I vote in committee. You do, we do, some of our business in the Committee of the Whole. Not created by the Constitution, but by Congress. So Tom Foley was the speaker. I went to, to Tom Foley and said, I'd like to be able to vote on the House floor. Uh, because in the Committee of the Whole, which is mm -hmm. which is your committee, and he said, well, Eleanor, my goodness, no one's ever said the district could vote on the House floor. I have to send it to an outside lawyer. The outside lawyer said, look, uh, it's your discretion. You created the Committee of the Whole just like you created her committees where mm -hmm. she does vote. Purely a matter of House rules that they can change if they choose to. And so at the beginning of each Congress period, I asked for my vote back, and the Speaker of the House, no matter who he is, if he's a Republican, will say no. Nancy Pelosi gave me my vote back when she was Speaker of the House. Uh, so how do you, how do you make sure that uh, this is not a free ride for them? Well, I call for a vote, uh, essentially, on whether my vote should be returned, and I get the votes of members like Jared Hoffman, <laughs> and I don't get a single Republican vote. You have to keep calling the question on them, particularly if you're the District of Columbia. By calling the question on them, Gary, we actually have won things that, I mean, we don't sit over here just because we can't vote without bringing home things for our own uh, uh, constituents. You have to think of a way to get around that, to work around the vote. You, to make you're sure. fighting for your district just like I did all the time. Absolutely. And, and you are putting them at, at, at odds with some of their own principles of uh, Small against federal overreach. Exactly. And, yes. So exactly. more power to you, exactly. Eleanor. I want to ask you about one more thing, uh, and that is women, because you have been uh, obviously the, the first woman to chair the EEOC way back in 1977. You've been blazing trails uh, for a long time. What advice do you have? And 
you know, we just had International Women's Day. So uh, this red is a, in Congress. Yeah, I wore my, my one red tie. Uh, what advice do you have for women today who are continuing to push for equal rights? I tell you, um, I have to say to women today, if there's a front line for getting not only women's rights, but rights for all Americans, I saw that front line when 500,000 women came to Washington after... Donald Trump was elected president. Never, not you know, I've never seen, not since uh, the great marches went on. We had abortion marches. I worked for the march from Washington. That was a huge march, but generally we don't have marches that big. Something's going on in this country, mm -hmm. and women are at the forefront of it. They don't let anything go by. That's why everybody wore red uh, this week. They don't let anything go by without reminding the country that they are the face of change. Uh, and I, all I've got to say to women who are really on the front lines now, uh, who have much yet to win, keep it up until 2018. Don't let this peter out. Mm -hmm. You know, in the face of a new president who many of us cannot possibly support, can't do we have the staying power? Yeah. To go to, to 2018, and I think that's the challenge for us. But the and early the early indications are pretty encouraging. Very, they're way ahead of you and me, Jared. Yeah. The women. Well, you've seen changed. a lot of these movements come and go. I you have. were part of the march on Washington with the Dr. King or the, the original mm -hmm. Dr. King and Bayard Rustin yeah. and the original civil rights leaders. Now that obviously uh, produced some actual results: civil rights legislation, voting rights legislation, exactly, and three great civil rights bills. Yeah. Women. But other, some other movements have sort of flashed and then evaporated. I mean, the, Well, it's very hard to keep a movement going beyond its kind of peak period. Yeah. Then people get into another stage of that movement, which is less likely to bring people out into the streets. And that, that's what happened to the labor movement. That's where I'm most distressed, because it needs to bring its people out in the streets from the unions mm -hmm. to once again represent people so that what we have in this country, which is people working two or three jobs just to make just to make enough money for one, uh, make what one money one job would, would give you. Uh, but the the women, when you ask me about women, there's so many ways in which uh, they have thrust themselves into leadership. But they really ought to. One of my great issues is uh, child care. If people really understood what it took for the average woman who has a kid or two oh, yeah. to go to work, and she must work today, I don't see how women do it. When my children were born, uh, we lived in New York, uh, I had a mother-in-law who, to this day, I revere as a better mother than I could ever be. Yeah. Uh, when I was a, a New York City Commission on Human Rights, just to show you the difference between me and women even today, because I was a city commissioner, I had a car. We li I lived in a wonderful brownstone in Harlem. My mother-in-law and father-in-law lived in, a, in a, an apartment in Harlem. This car, this driver, came to get me, took me with my kid, and even when I had two, this is when they were very young, when you are very, very... Weary uh, about leaving a kid with just someone, um, took me there and then took me all the way downtown to to the offices of the New York City Commission on Human Rights. 
At the same time that I was making that route, women who lived close to the A train where I was were doing the same thing, except they got on the A train and tried to get to work on time. Mm -hmm. Something is very wrong uh, with this country that we're the only advanced country in the world that says to women and and, and their husbands, y'all just find some other You're on your own to figure this out. Yeah. And we don't know what it's taking out of kids, and we, we certainly know it's taking a lot out of parents. Right. So I, I, I love the fact that women are in the front because there's so much leftover work for women to do. Well, that's a great message for women. And just to, to finish the, the uh, question about this movement, which has been led by women, uh, and how it might compare at this early stage to other movements that you've seen come and go. You're hopeful. Do you have any predictions for this country? I must say, I think that whoever elected Donald Trump has done us a favor. I simply did not see what I'm beginning to see now. That, that people understood you want change, you got to fight for it. You know, if you were born a black girl in D.C., with no voting representation, no no representation in the Congress of the United mm -hmm. States at all in segregated schools, where well, you kind of raised to know you kind of fight. But Americans, it seems to me, they have become very tranquil, and I can understand why because of the hard economic times. Yes, there's plenty of jobs uh, under under five percent unemployment. I hadn't seen that, but people were miserable because of what it takes uh, to make a living today. So I think this is going to spill over. What we're seeing, this activism, this anti-Trump activism, is going to spill over to great new movements that are we're in for a lot of change. And it's also the mother of all civics lessons, isn't it? It sure is. You know, if without the people um, at the at the center of change, change cannot happen. I, I, I'm sure you uh, are like me, Jerry running to catch up with your constituents. They're running very fast, and it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and they're running to my town hall meetings yes. in numbers that I've never seen. And they're, You're not, exactly and they're right. not screaming and yelling because of where you stand on the affordable no, care. No, they're not. They're saying thank you, and, and please do more, and we're with you. Yeah. It's pretty wonderful. It is. And the contrast is, is terrific to see on television. What's well, also television. wonderful to have you here as, as my guest on the podcast and to have you as my colleague. Thank you, Eleanor Holmes Norton. Jerry, what a lovely thing to do. Very good to be with you. To wrap up this week's podcast, I have some questions. One from a constituent by the name of Judy, who asks, what are you and the House doing about climate change? Well, what I'm trying to do and what the House majority is trying to do are pretty different things. Uh, the House majority right now, uh, as well as the Trump administration, uh, are in deep climate denial mode. In fact, uh, just this week, our new EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, made statements that are deeply disturbing, suggesting he doesn't really even understand the science behind climate change and certainly doesn't understand the role that human activities are playing uh, in this very critical uh, problem. Uh, meanwhile, it's all about deregulating and rolling back clean air standards uh, in the Congress right now. And I am, uh, to answer your question, playing defense against an awful lot of bad ideas that are attempting to take us backward. We have made a lot of progress on this issue. We went from 
the sidelines uh, of the global climate change issue to being the leader of the world uh, under President Obama and doing some very exciting things, not just the, the Paris Accord that brought almost 200 countries together with binding commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but initiatives that are driving technological improvements, uh, some tax policies that have uh, breathed new life into renewable energy investments all over this country. Uh, we're also beginning to identify areas that should not be open to oil and gas and coal energy development. And I've introduced legislation to uh, take those areas off the table for fossil fuel extraction, my Keep It in the Ground Act and other bills. I'm going to keep moving those bills, talking about those bills, building the political foundation so that when things change here in Washington, and I know they eventually will, we'll be ready to move aggressively on good climate policy. But for right now, it's an awful lot of defense, and some of that defense will be making sure that places like the state of California and local governments remain free of federal preemption so that they can continue to lead on clean air and greenhouse gas reduction and other important environmental policies. So thanks for the question. Now, we're going to go to our intern, this new segment in our podcast where I put interns on the spot. Our intern is Stephen. Stephen's from UCLA. Let me first ask you, Stephen, how have you enjoyed working as an intern in our office? Thank you, Congressman. It's been a great time so far. I'm Northern California, born and raised, and I just love being able to feel like I'm back home while I'm here in D.C. Right. We got a lot of pictures of Northern California here in my office, a lot of pictures of fish, uh, so you kind of have to like fish to be part of my team. All right, let's, let's have your question. Sure, I wanted to ask you about being in the minority party now. So anytime you want to get anything through or stop anything from getting through, you have to get some folks on the other side of the aisle to support you on that. And I understand you did that pretty successfully while you were in the California Assembly. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you do that now, being in Congress. How do you work across the aisle when partisanship's at an all-time high? It's a great question, and it's a great challenge. As bad as it is, and I'll just be honest, right now, there's very little opportunity to just honestly problem-solve in good faith across party lines with my colleagues, many of whom I get along perfectly fine with, um, because the big fights are kind of taking all the air out of the room. It's all about the fact that my Republican colleagues have all three branches of government, and they're in a red-hot hurry to jam through as much deregulation and tax cutting and other parts of their agenda, the, the culture wars and the social stuff, as they can. And so uh, it's a difficult environment because there's just not a lot of space uh, to work together. i, I got to fight every one of those things. Those are core values. Those are all red lines for me. So we're spending a huge amount of time fighting against each other. My ability, you know, you asked, can I persuade them? Can I bring them over on any of these things? On these big issues, it's very difficult for me to do that alone, but I'll tell you what can persuade them, and that is all the people out there that are starting to raise their voices and step up and speak up. We've already been able to back them down a couple times. You may remember one of the first things they tried to do in the new Congress was to eliminate the independent ethics watchdog for Congress, and it was such a backlash and an outcry that they, they immediately stepped away from that idea. Well, you know, members of Congress like me and my, my Democratic colleagues helped contribute 
to that backlash, but mainly we were just spotlighting for the American people a really bad idea that was about to move forward in Congress. The American people took it from there. Uh, the media played a role, and the political climate changed literally overnight, and my Republican colleagues immediately reversed on that. That's the kind of thing that, that we'll try to do uh, in, in this difficult political environment. Uh, and we'll hope that eventually we'll get things turned around. We may have to win some elections to make it happen, but we'll get things turned around to where we can just sit around the table and talk about problems and come up with bipartisan solutions the way people would like us to do. Thanks for the question. And thanks to, yeah, thanks to everybody that's been listening on this week's podcast. We'll see you next time. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman.